Well, good morning again. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. It's been a little while since we've been here, so I'll have some introductory things to say, and then we're going to flip over to Ephesians chapter 5 and continue to look at some of the considerations that we were looking at before with regard to uh, the relationship between a husband and a wife. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time that we have today. Thank you for uh, the provision that you've made uh, for us here at Community Bible Church, this building, these facilities, uh, uh, the comfort of them. We are so grateful that you have provided this to us. There are those around the world who don't even have anything remotely like this, and yet they are gathered today praising you, worshiping you. Their hearts are joyful. They're glad. May we be also considering all that we have been given. Thank you for the word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for its purpose. Thank you for allowing us to have it. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand it and receive it today. May we be encouraged, convicted, exhorted, and directed by it. We praise you that we are known by you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for clinging clinging to our own self-righteousness in any way. We are creatures of habit. We love to do that. We tend to do it. It often is our solace, which is sin. Help us to look at Christ and Christ alone. May he always be the sole object of our faith. And may your word today direct us on that path, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we understand from our study in the book of Colossians that Paul is writing to a church that has been infiltrated by a false teacher and that there are certainly problems that he has created and caused. Um, It's unclear from a reading of the passages whether there has been some impact or influence on the way that people relate to each other in marriages. Apparently there was some issue in the Colossae church about this and Paul is addressing it being mindful of the fact that Paul is writing at the behest of their pastor who had traveled a great distance back to Rome to talk to Paul about these issues and concerns, who then penned this letter that was delivered uh, back to the church um, uh, by a slave named Onesimus uh, who was owned by Philemon. And, um, and so it's significant in how this all was pulled together and put together according to God's good providence. And so we understand then that Paul is concerned about people understanding their union with Christ. Now, that's significant, and we cannot forget that. The book of Colossians is primarily about that issue, our union with Christ, and that union then being played out in a new creational lifestyle. So how Christians live. We live a certain way because of who we are in Jesus Christ, our union with him causes then a certain pattern and conduct of behavior. Doesn't mean that we always do it perfectly. We will never do it perfectly. Only Jesus Christ has done it perfectly. And Paul makes that abundantly clear. But there is an exhortation that comes with these imperatives that flow out of the indicative, and that is this. If Jesus Christ is so great a Savior, how can you not live for him in a manner that is pleasing to him? Out of gratitude, not to gain more righteousness, There's not a single person in this room who's going to go to heaven because they've been a good person, because they've been a good husband, because they've been a good wife, because they've been a good son or a good daughter. You will go to heaven solely because of 
Jesus Christ and your faith in his finished work. He must be the object of your faith. If someone tells you otherwise, they are lying to you and they are false teachers. Certainly that was a problem here in the Colossae church. This false teacher was taking their eyes off of Jesus Christ and feeding them all sorts of nonsense, the worship of angels, special ex- experiences, nonsense. In fact, he would say that these things may have some appearance to be helpful in some context, but they are foolishness and they have no power over sin. And so Paul then moves into these imperatives which we are looking at here in Colossians with regard to the relationship between a husband and a wife. And he begins it all here in verse 12 of chapter 3. And so let's go back to verse 3, or chapter 3 rather, verse 12, and be reminded of what it is that Paul is doing here. He says in verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, now look what happens. Flowing out of our election, God then chooses people in the context of, of his salvific purpose. He's creating for himself a kingdom-dwelling people. And these people who are referred to as holy and beloved, hearkening back to the language that he would use in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel, which is now transferred over or translated over to the church, he tells them to do something because you can. Isn't that wonderful? You can do this. Bob the Christian, (laughs) put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So there's your foundation. And out of this foundation then flows these other things, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So what does this look like now in the family? He's basically given us what it looks like in the context of the body, the church. This now translates over, these same principles translate over into our home life. We live with other people. We dwell with other people. And so there's an expectation that that living and that dwelling is going to be regulated and and directed by this new creational lifestyle. These principles still apply. When you leave church, it doesn't mean you divest yourself of all these virtues. You don't only put these virtues on when you're here. They are to be on all the time. And indeed, they are to be increasing. This is what Peter would say. In 2 Peter, those Christian virtues ought to be growing and developing in you over time, growing in the faith. And so what happens then as we go into the home? We step into the door, we walk into a house, there's a husband and a wife, and Paul has an exhortation for them. Verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And we've spent a lot of time talking about what that means. Verse 19, the focus of what we're doing here today in this passage, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your child, your children, so that they will not lose heart. And so to help us to better understand what Paul is talking about, we went over to the book of Ephesians. And We were looking at Ephesians chapter 5, in particular verses 22 through 33. 
And we were working our way through these passages and considering um, the example that we have of how to, as husbands, are we to love our wives. Paul's exhortation in Colossians that the husband is to love the wife as Christ has loved the church. And so we see to here that Paul makes a similar exhortation. It's, meant, it's believed by many that Ephesians and Colossians were, were written in close proximity to each other, and the churches were within reasonable proximity to each other, probably about 100 miles in the context of distance. And we find a similar exhortation, which I think is significant because you have two epistles that have significant portions of them dedicated to this particular issue. Repetition is an important principle in teaching. It means you need to pay attention to what's being said because what's being taught is very important for you. And so you need to understand it. You need to understand it. And so we should, and we ought, and we're trying to. Lord, be gracious to us. Help us to understand. And so Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5 the following, verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with, with the word. And so husbands, as you're listening to this, you're thinking to yourself, okay, how did Christ love the church? What, how do I do this? And this is what Paul is saying. As Christ has done this for the church, so to you with your wife. So we see here, husbands, you love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So right out of the gate we know that it's a sacrificial love. Husbands are to love their wives sacrificially. That means that means not asserting your rights, not asserting your position, not asserting your priority, not lording your position of authority within the home over her, not demanding her submission. Her submission to you ought to be in loving response to her obedience to Christ and because you've made it easy for her to do that. No one wants to submit to an ogre. No one wants to submit to a despot. And if that's how you rule your homes, husbands, and you have a problem with your wife, then you may want to reconsider your methodology. You may want to kind of maybe adopt the, you know, more loving approach. This is what Paul is encouraging, teaching, instructing these men to do. Now again, friends, these are redeemed men. He is writing to Christian men. The book of Colossians opens up with a reference that Paul is writing to the holy ones, the saints in Colossae. So this is a book, these are epistles, the Bible, these epistles are written to churches. This is not a general epistle, it's an it's a, it's a epistle for the church. And so he's writing to believers in this church, he's writing to men who are Christians. So what does a Christian husband do? He does this, pure and simple. It's not, it's not real hard. And so the, so the example that he gives us is Christ. And so right out of the gate, we understand it's sacrificial. That's important. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. This speaks to the idea of, of, of Christ building the church, cleansing the church through the word, God's word. Husbands, that's what you are in your home. You are the, you are the I guess for lack of a better, better term, I'll, I'll just say the pastor of your home. 
You're, you're shepherding, you're leading, you're guiding, you're feeding, you're protecting. That's what elders in a church do. Lead, feed, protect. In the home, the, the, the husband does the same thing. This is the word sanctify, to, to cause one to, to grow and to be, to be purified by the word. And so, so dad, so husbands, and I'll say dads too, you, you, are, you are in a position where you are to be leading your home spiritually. Now, I've talked about the fact that one of my great laments right now with regard to the evangelical church is that it seems that the women are fulfilling this role more than the men. That's sad. That's a sad commentary. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one of the ways that Satan buffets the home and buffets men and tempts men is to cause them to be dismissive about, the act, about their obligation in this regard, to diminish its importance. We're told so many other things are more important. I mean, what is more important? What's more important for your son and your daughter to see, dads? You sitting on a bleacher or you sitting in a pew? I would submit to you that more dads are spending more time on bleachers than they are in pews. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. Now, over and over and over again, the church is sacrificed on the altar of whatever the kids want. No, you lead. They don't lead, you lead. And this is what's happening. So, so what happens, so again, so, so, so husbands, think with me. You're called to love your wife as Christ has loved the church. And so what is Christ doing with his church? We know from Scripture that he's building it, he's purifying it, he's sanctifying it, he's making it holy. And we're going to see an image that's painted for us by Paul in the balance of this when he speaks to the idea of this mystery that exists in the context of, of the picture of marriage that harkens back to Genesis 2.24, which is significant. And so, so men, as you're looking at this, as a husband, you, you, are, you have to be mindful of this, and I hope it checks you, because it ought to. And wives, go ahead, put the elbow. Because you want a husband who fulfills this. Ladies, who aren't who aren't married and looking for a, a future husband, you want this man. You want this guy. You want to meet a young man who is a good student of God's word, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and who will lead you in this way. That's what you should do. So, you are, you are fulfilling the obligation in the context of verse 26. As Christ has sanctified the church, so too you sanctify your wife through the word. Why? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having not spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Husbands, you are, you are involved in, in, in your wife's sanctification, bringing about holiness and growth and progress. That's something that you do, as Christ has done for the church. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, 
Each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. There are some, there are some commentators who have said that this is, this is marriage counseling for dummies, for the men. If you don't, basically, if you don't get the first part of this, then, then, then think of it this way. Love your wife the way you love yourself. Do for her what you do for yourself. And I want you to think about that for a minute. What do you typically do for yourself? Anything you want. <laughs> Whenever you want. However you want. If you're going to get a fishing pole, it's the best fishing pole. If you're going to get a rifle, it's the best rifle. If you're going to get a new driver, it's the best one. It's the one that Tiger Woods has. Even though you can't hit it. <laughs> you think you can. And so this is what we're going to look at today. What we find then from Scripture is this, that the standard for regulating the husband's leadership is Christ's own self-sacrificing love. And, and that's really the predicate for what we're, what we're seeing here. And so in, in these passages, Paul then begins to open up the idea of the, the picture that it paints for a husband loving his wife. In verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So in verse 28, we have an exhortation for the husband to love their own wives as their own bodies. Husband and wife are one body, one flesh, one person. So that's that picture. That reference to body communicates the idea of what is communicated in Scripture about the, the, the union between a husband and a wife, the unique nature of it. So the essential thing about marriage, and I want you to pay attention to this, the essential thing about marriage is unity, oneness, and togetherness. Unity, oneness, and togetherness. Now, the love is the bond of unity. We found that in, in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, right? Paul talks about that. And we find here again that this unity that comes out of a relationship between a husband and wife is driven by the love that the husband has for the wife. The husband really sets that, that standard in the context of what is going on in that relationship. Now, that's, that's a, that, that requires the wife's participation, too. I'm not saying it's not, that there's not two individuals involved, but, but husbands, even if your wife doesn't love you, you're still to love her. Wives, even if your husband doesn't love you, you're still to submit to him. Why? Because it's about Christ, ultimately, first and foremost. That's not a secondary consideration. The first consideration always is, I am doing this because I love the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's the foundation layer. It's the motivation for everything, right? The way you and I relate to in the church, that's motivated by our love for Jesus Christ. If, if we don't have love, what does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 13? Well, it's horrible. The things become like, what? Ugh. It sounds like dissonance. It's clanging. It's awful. We don't like it that way. But it, when it's coming out of a heart of love, then, 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 then the bond that Paul speaks of begins to flourish. There is that sense of unity, which is so critical and so important. So what we find here then by Paul's use of this language in verse 28 about his, the body and, 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 and this picture is, is growing out of this principle of one flesh. The marriage bond creates an intimate, permanent, one flesh union between a man and a woman. 
we live in a culture today when that's not even hardly recognized anymore, even within the church. We have all sorts of stuff going on. Statistically, there are just as many people living with each other in the church as there are outside of it. That's the data. That's the most recent data. That's alarming. That's very problematic. Very problematic. So we see here that the marriage bond, the predicate for Paul's assertions here and teaching is that there's this one flesh union. The husband and wife are not two isolated individuals. Uh, you do your thing and I'm going to do my thing and blah, that type of thing. No, they're, they're joined together in the context of this, this mystery, this union that exists. It doesn't mean that you can't do things separately. I don't, I don't have an anticipation that you know, you're, you're just hovering over each other all day long. You couldn't get anything done. A man has to work. There are things that have to be done. There's responsibilities. We have the picture in Proverbs 31 of, of, the, the, of the wife taking care of her business and the husband taking care of his business. He's in the gates. He's, taking, he's in the city, that means, and he's there. And apparently he's there for a while, taking care of business. And she's taking care of business. But there's still that unity. That unity demonstrated by the fact that they're both fulfilling their roles and carrying out what they're obligated to do to bring honor and glory to Christ. So this is the basis of the exhortation. We're not two isolated individuals, they're one. In the light of this, Dr. Lloyd-Jones insightfully writes, the husband must no longer think singly or individually. Hmm. The husband must no longer think singly or individually. The husband ought to love his wife sacrificially because she is a part of himself. Isn't that wonderful? That's quite unique. You don't find this in any other religion in the world. There's no other religion that teaches this unique bond between a husband and a wife. Indeed, there are some religions that say that the woman is chattel, is the property of the husband, and that he can do as he chooses with her, including killing her, mistreating her, abusing her, having more than one wife, all sorts of things. But in Christianity, we see that Paul here, and this, is, this would be very contrary to the pagan teaching of the day. There have some, it's possible that even the false teacher was involved in advocating those kinds of things. A pagan perspective of marriage, as opposed to the Christian perspective of marriage. So logically, because of this, because the wife is part of him, it only stands to reason, I'll use one of my favorite words, axiomatic, it necessarily follows, it's logical, logical, the husband should act toward his wife as he acts towards his own body for which he naturally cares. All normal people love their bodies in the sense that they care for the body's many practical needs, such as food, clothing, and shelter, and golf clubs. So Christian husbands are to affectionately nourish and cherish their wives and tenderly care for their many practical needs, just as they care for their own bodies, needs, and comforts. That's the point here of verse 28 and 29. Furthermore, the oneness of the husband-wife relationship is so real that for a man, let's think about this, guys, I want you to think about this, that for a man to neglect or harm his wife is to neglect or harm himself. 
So I, I think it necessarily begs the question, if you're having problems in your marriage, perhaps it's because you're not fulfilling this role, men. Perhaps it's because you don't have a biblical view of what your marriage is and what your wife is to you in the eyes of God. When, when, when God gave Adam or gave Eve to Adam, he communicated this profound truth. That's the mystery that Paul talks about ultimately. The two shall be one. One. So guys, you got to think about this. You don't want to harm yourself. And does the way you treat your wife correspond with the way that you treat yourself? And again, ladies, when you're looking for a husband, you need to be mindful of this. Does your potential mate, husband, understand this? You ought to be asking him these questions. You should be having conversations about this. Does he demonstrate that to you while you're dating or courting or whatever you call it today? Talking. I, don't, I can't even keep up anymore. I mean, we used to just go on dates. You know, you ask a girl out. I don't know. So if you're talking or if you're courting or dating or whatever, does he demonstrate this even in the context of, of that? And he ought to in the context of, of how he ought to just treat a woman, a lady. And let me just give you this little bit of advice. If you're not seeing it while you're dating, you're not going to see it when you get married. You're not going to change them. It's just going to get worse. Trust me when I tell you. I'm a lawyer too. I've been in domestic relations courts. I've, I've dealt with those things. I thought he would change. He's so different now. No, he's just like he was. You just weren't watching. You weren't paying attention. Ladies, pay attention. Better, I'm just going to tell you, better to be single and sad than married and miserable. All right? I mean it. I'm going to tell you, it's horrible. It could be very horrible. And don't think for a minute that somehow, now I'm not going to say it's never happened, that you're, but, but you're not going to mystically change this guy. All right? So just keep that in mind. You ought to be looking for somebody who is understanding your the relationship that you're going to have in the context, in the light of the scripture, right? That's what you want. You may say, Pastor, they're hard to find. I, 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 listen, I understand that. It's, it's bad. I, under, I get it. It's not good. But I would encourage you to be patient, to wait upon the Lord, to pray about it, but not to make irrational, subjective, emotionally driven decisions that, take, that could take you a lifetime to unwind. Be careful. Men, the same thing in the context of future, a future spouse and a wife and understanding where she is at and what she's doing. Does she value the church? Does she love the church? Does she love the Lord Jesus Christ? Does she relate to you in the context of her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is Christ a priority? Has she made Christ a priority? 
Again, better to be single and sad than married and miserable. One of the chief goals of marriage, as it is presented in Scripture, is unity and oneness. What is essential to understand is that unity in marriage is intimately connected to headship and submission. You can't have unity if you don't have headship and submission. You can't have two chiefs in the house. You can't have two captains, two generals, two admirals. Whatever you want to do, you can't have that. And God has created an order. So we go back to the creative mandate. What did God establish that was good? Remember in Genesis, he said it was good. Well, it was good in the way he made it, too, in the context of a relationship between a husband and a wife. And so unity is, is necessarily connected to headship and submission. To achieve the reality of this one flesh relationship, the husband is to selflessly lead and care for his wife in the way that Christ leads and cares for the church, men. And the wife is to submit to and support her husband's leadership in the same way that the church submits to and supports Christ's leadership. Oh man, could we talk about that for a long time? That whole issue has been flipped on its head in the church today. And although a husband and a wife have different roles in the marriage relationship, they both promote the interest, fulfillment, and well-being of the other. And so men, you need to understand how you would relate to your wife in the context of of how you treat yourself, and, and you want to provide a biblical model of headship and leadership within the home that promotes this type of unity that is required in the context of headship and submission. And yes, you can have unity. In the world today, you would think that that's oil and water. You're talking, what do you mean, headship and submission? Who are you? But that's what the Bible says. And when when we're obedient to Scripture, when we have what is ordained as something that is good in the eyes of God. Well, Paul also tells us that Christ and his people are one body. We see that in verses 29 through 32. We've read those passages. We note that, uh, the, the, uh, again, Christ's care for the church in verse 29 is the perfect model presented for the husband to imitate. And verse 30 reminds all believers that they comprise his body. And because they are members of his body, Christ can do nothing other than to nourish and cherish each and every member. That's a beautiful picture. He loves his body, and he goes to great lengths to care for it. So in the marriage relationship, the husband is to follow Christ's example. That's exactly what Paul is saying. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, men. I know it's a high standard. It's a high calling. But it's the calling that you've been given, and you've been given the ability to do it through the work and power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. The motivation, again, is because we are members of his body. I think that emphasizes for us, too, the importance of church. I think think a tangential issue connected to this is how we ought to be prioritizing his body, how it ought to be preeminent in our considerations and our, our comings and our goings in terms of priority. It's important to Christ. He gave himself for it. 
It ought to be important to us, and it ought to be reflected in our homes in the manner of men in which we treat our wife. Christ can do nothing other than to nourish and cherish each and every member of his body. That's a beautiful picture. And so, husbands, we follow Christ's example. And we also see then that Paul says that this is a mystery, verse 32, referencing back to verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So immediately following the mention of his body, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, the Old Testament marriage passage that is first applied to Adam and Eve. The marriage union, unlike any other relationship on earth, uniquely makes two people into one person, one body, one flesh. Don't forget that. In terms of your marriage, in terms of what you have, it is clear how Scripture views it. It is incredibly unique. Again, there's no other religion that advocates or teaches this. This is unique to Christianity through and through. And why does Paul quote this Old Testament text on marriage and apply it to Christ and his body? He does so because the relationship between Christ and his body is an unbreakable, think about this, unbreakable, permanent, loving union like marriage is. The sanctity of marriage, tied, woven into the very fabric of Christ and the church. The same picture is painted there. It's beautiful. How unique, how wonderful, what a blessing this is in the context of the relationship that we can have with another person. This unique bond, this loving bond, this unity is really quite magnificent. It's been so diminished, and, and I, even as I preach about it and I, and I talk to people, it's, there's this barrier. We, we've been so indoctrinated by the world to view marriage from a different way. It's been diminished. Marriage is, is a wonderful thing. Even in the marriage ceremony, there's reference to the unique nature of it and how wonderful it truly is. I think we often forget that. And what a beautiful picture it is to, to consider as well that Christ and his body it's unbreakable. It's permanent. It's always loving. Isn't it nice to think? Isn't it wonderful to think that Christ always perfectly loves us? He always perfectly leads us. He always perfectly provides. He always perfectly extends himself to us. He never, he never deprives us of anything when we don't do exactly what he wants us to do. He doesn't play that game with us, the mind game, the passive aggressiveness, the nonsense that goes on in the home sometime. Well, I didn't get what I want, so you don't get what you want. I'm going to tell you, that's just not biblical. If that's how your marriage is, that's a train wreck, not a marriage. You got to stop. You don't do that. Well, again, why not? Okay, Let's say, for example, you just don't want to accept this argument. Fine, I'll take you back to Colossians 3. You forgive and you forbear. Are you a Christian or not? Well, okay, then you have to act like one, even in your marriage. Yeah, but, no, 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 wait a minute. Does, 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 does Christ ever say to you, yeah, but? Never. 
He's never said that to you once in your entire life. I love you, but never. So, friends, we have to be mindful of these things. Again, new creational lifestyle. This is how Christians act in a marriage. Now, do we always do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Do we fail miserably? All the time. What do we do? We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us, and we keep working forward. We work in the context of sanctification, that is, the will of God for our lives. He has clothed us in this new nature, and we continue to progress. But if we don't progress, if there's not growth, if there's not development, if these patterns continue, then there's an underlying problem. And maybe the problem is that there's not a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ to begin with. That has to be taken into consideration. So take heed, friends. Take heed to what the Word is saying with regard to what marriage is and what it looks like and how beautiful it is and how it ought to be treasured and how it ought to be, be, be considered with respect to the picture of the union between Christ and the church. It's interesting to me that Paul uses that type of picture to help us better understand marriage. After applying Genesis 2.24 to Christ and his body, Paul declares, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Listen to this. In the context of these meanings, the word mystery here means a revealed secret, a divine plan or purpose that was previously hidden and inaccessible, but is now revealed by God in Christ and proclaimed to all who believe. Yeah. In the ordinary sense, a mystery implies knowledge withheld. Its scriptural significance is truth revealed. Truth revealed. So the truth of the matter is this. The marriage bond is akin to what is existing between Christ and the church, and you ought to reflect that, husbands, in your marriage with your wife. That's how you relate to her. That's amazing. It's interesting, too. One commentator says this, the true marriage is that between Christ and his church. All other marriages, including that in the garden, are faint images of the marriage of the lamb with his bride, the church. So this mystery that is so wonderful or great refers to the hidden and prophetic meaning of Genesis 2.24. The concealed truth here revealed is that Genesis 2.24, the one flesh relationship between Adam and Eve, is a prophetic image of the union between the risen Christ and his redeemed people. So the true fulfillment of Genesis 2.24 is found in the relationship of Christ and his church. The true marriage is that between Christ and his church. All other marriages, including that in the garden, as I noted, are faint images of the marriage of the lamb with his bride, the church. The standard then for marriage is Christ and his church, not male domination or egalitarian marriages, where there's like this equal footing which is very prevalent today, and it's eroding marriages, it's making marriages more difficult. That's coming into the church, it's in the church. That there is no submission, there is no headship, you're just two equals having to, having to coexist. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. And if you hear otherwise, that's a false teacher. So we have to conclude that the headship-submission relationship in a marriage is not an evil to be stamped out of existence. 
On the contrary, it is God's beautiful design for marriage. It is part of the essence of marriage, is what we're finding here. And so this passage in Ephesians, in conclusion, concludes with an exhortation to the husband to love his own wife even as himself. And for the wife to see to it that she respects her husband. The Greek word for respect is phobos, which can range in meaning from terror or fear to respect or reverence. Which is it? In this context, respect is an acceptable English rendering. The wife respects her husband in the sense that she recognizes that he is her God-appointed head, her husband. As one commentator has remarked, phobos is a normal element in all authority structures. Respect. Because the husband is her head in the marriage relationship, the wife not only needs to submit to him, she also needs to respect her husband. And, and men, you ought to be respectable, one who can be respected. Because you're leading her in the context of what Scripture has said. Well, there's a lot more that could be said about the passage, but time will not permit, and we need to move forward. And next Sunday, what I'm going to do is to consider as well just the demonstration of this love, this loving, nurturing relationship between a husband and a wife, and to consider practically what that looks like and to consider some exhortation from Scripture in that regard from Peter, who has some beautiful insight into this. And so, Lord willing, we'll get to that passage next week. But in the meantime, men, I want you to consider, use your mind, are you meeting this calling? Are you heeding this instruction? This is not a TED Talk. I'm not here to give you suggestions. This is the Word of God. Take heed, listen, learn, and apply it. And I submit to you that if you do that, the Lord will bless your marriage. She may not respond immediately in kind, but that's okay. You just keep on keeping on. You've seen the bumper sticker. The guy's shuffling along. Just keep on keeping on. Love the Lord, do it for him, and leave the rest to him. But do it, and do it in a loving way as Christ has loved the church. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this exhortation. Lord, these are often incredibly difficult passages for us. We, we just look at this and we say, I can't. Sadly, some say, I won't. Soften our hearts, Lord. Help us to see the wisdom that is contained in these passages. Help us to understand it in a way that brings about a transformed way of living and interacting with our wife. Help us to love you, and in loving you, demonstrate the reality of these things in our relationship with our wife. Forgive us for not loving our wife as Christ has loved the church. Instill in us a greater sense of the value of marriage and to treasure it as a great gift from you. And forgive us for not doing that. And forgive us for allowing the world to persuade us and sway us on these issues. Help us to return to the standard of Scripture. And in so doing, may you be glorified. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you.